Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's going on in the Great Smoky Mountains, Stud? Oh, geez, man. Uh, we got a little cloud here today, a little bit of rain, but the boy, the leaves are turning now, Dave. It's uh, it's about to get beautiful. Waiting, I think, on a little bit of sunshine in the next couple of days, and I think that's going to probably really get these mountains up here looking wonderful, man. Uh, and it's uh, that's why they come here, man, by the millions. Uh, what makes it most visited national park in the country great smoky mountains national park and uh wow it's uh it's about to turn really really fabulously pretty so when it gets really cold do you hibernate like a bear oh geez man (laughs) Uh, speaking of bears there's a whole bunch of them up here man i mean uh, wow i've seen four already since i've been here uh a couple of them are neighbors, man. Right. I got one big old black one that likes to yeah. lay down in the stream mm-hmm. back here. Yeah. Don't, yeah well, so. listen, don't go hugging the babies, okay? No, no, no. I won't be <laughs> hugging the babies or putting them in my car I know. or taking them for a ride or anything like that. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. It sounds like you've heard stories about that. All right. All right. So, Ron, what is uh, what else is happening? Hey, let, let's ask. Let me ask you about the dinner. The dinner deal. The dinner with the stud. It is. You're we're just about ready to eat here. And listen. So you got my attention on that when you when we start talking about food. Oh yeah. Fans from far away, as far away as Seattle, Washington, are planning to be there Wednesday night, October thirteenth, in Knoxville, Tennessee's. Great Calhoun's by the River Restaurant, right near the University of Tennessee campus. So this is going to be a ton of fun. 7 to 9 p.m., and they're going to be enjoying a fantastic barbecue buffet dinner from one of the best restaurants in America. So so what else are they going to be doing while they're hanging out with you guys? Oh, geez, man. We got plans for them. I can tell you that. Uh, they're going to be greeted <laughs> at the door. By myself, uh, Les Thatcher, and I got a special guest, was Jimmy Golden. But uh, Jimmy is going to have to try to make the next one. And we've got Dr. Tom Pritchard, man, who was a big continental star and uh, very recognizable in the Knoxville area. Actually, he trains wrestlers in Knoxville. And uh, he's going to be the special guest. And uh, then uh, 
whoever comes, you know, it looks like we're going to have quite a few people, man, uh, really, really uh, a fairly decent crowd. Uh, they're all going to be presented with two free 8 by 10 photographs of me and uh, Les Thatcher autographed. And uh, then they're going to be handed tickets for special door prizes that's going to be given away later in the evening. Uh, and, you know, and those door prizes are pretty cool, man. One of them is a collector edition videos of the Brian Pillman. Great, great uh, uh, contribution and uh, shows uh, to uh, to uh, help Brian Pillman's family, man, after what happened to him many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. And programs that uh, Les Thatcher did himself uh, in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. Uh, really, really valuable uh, collector edition stuff, man. And uh, and I'm going to give away some classic uh, Southeastern T-shirts. I'm giving away a Tennessee stud mask, and the Cherokee Distributing Company hmm. has got a big special gift they're giving away. So wow. fans are going to get quite a few things, uh, some coming in the door and some leaving. So uh, And then the entertainment's going to begin uh, after we get everybody in and seated, and fans will be going to – going to the buffet table, but as they're doing so, fans are going to be able to see and hear for the first time ever a live stud cast, man. And uh, this one is about a very special event. It's going to be about that world championship match that's going to be on the the very next uh, stud cast. And, uh, and then uh, they're going to be able to ask questions uh, of the three of us as soon as that's over. And uh, all that's going to be seen on the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. That's pretty awesome. By the way, I'm going to be providing a couple of colored pictures as well. I'll be buying the crayons this weekend. And speaking of the <laughs> Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel, you're in the process of taking this whole night to the next level. T tell us about that, Ron. Well, you know, uh, uh, we're going to make this a very special night, man. It's part of the YouTube channel. Uh, and then at first, I just had the idea of let's record this and show it back on the YouTube channel. But now I've, I'm really trying. I'm in the process of getting this confirmed that I can do it. Uh, and I, I wish I knew right now while we're recording this. But I am trying to get that, that both these hours shot live and shown as it's happening for fans around the world right there on my Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. So as it's going on, they'll be able to see it worldwide live. And uh, they may not be able to taste the food or shake the hands like the people that are coming and, uh, and going to be there. But as it happens, you know, they can they can be a part of it and uh, find it recorded there later. If I can't do it live, it's going to be recorded and it'll be there later. Hey, this is what you don't really get events like this anymore where you could possibly see it live and then you could interact and then, of course, they're sitting there eating and dining with you as well. So, obviously, you really wanted to do something special for your fans. So, just what have you been saying for um, – it's what you've been talking about for a while is, is giving back. And now, we don't have confirmation that it's going to be available live yet, but you'll be getting back with us on that information very soon. On Facebook, by the way, three places where you can find out and keep up. Ron Fuller Welch. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or the author Ron Fuller Welch, so you can get information on all of those, the latest information on the dinner with the stud. On Twitter, it's Ron Fuller Welch there. Ron, you're going to be leaving messages on those pages 
And uh, about after the studcast, by the way, uh, concerning whether or not it's going to be live. And so I know you're you're going to be making that announcement as soon as you get some of the technical stuff worked out. Well, that's for sure. And uh, and I do want to add real quickly here. Uh, there's still a few days to get uh, tickets. Uh, we're uh, about four days left. So if you're listening to this broadcast on Wednesday, uh, we have until Saturday of the week of this broadcast being released in order to go ahead and get your tickets for this event. And uh, we've got, like I said, uh, quite a crowd and uh, really, really uh, looking forward to it. And uh, so if you get your tickets by, say, six o'clock on this coming Saturday after this uh, studcast goes out to everybody, Mm -hmm. then uh, you're going to have an opportunity to come and join us for the event live. That's awesome. All right, Stud, let's get to it. So where do we ride to today? Well, we're into another today's training, man, uh, to find out how far a booker could go when he was contacting and arranging the talent for big tournaments like this event that we're going to be talking about today. This today's training is going to be a lesson for for uh, people that uh, want to be bookers. <laughs> and I guess there's still some of them out there, you know, uh, and uh, for the old days, uh, how, how you had to handle that when you were booking. And uh, then we're going to find out what one of the biggest cards in Southeastern history was on the NWA World Championship night of October 7th, 1977. You know, uh, and uh, that card's are going to include, you know, the, the biggest tournaments, one of the biggest tournaments in Southeastern Knoxville's history. This is the week leading up to that big world championship on October 7th. Uh, this one is, uh, is the only one that I ever had uh, wasn't a, uh, just a southeastern belt at stake. Uh, this in this tournament, not just the southeastern belt, but also the shot at the NWA World Champion Harley Race is at, at stake. And uh, we're going to discuss the TV that's going to promote this big card, uh, this tournament. We're going to talk about the results of the matches and the attendance. And this tournament is not just a tournament. Uh, people are going to be amazed. This is a really good card in this particular studcast. And then uh, we're going to finish up with another learning tree. It returns to this studcast. And then Mr. Harold Washington asked, uh, which do you think was more effective for choosing the opponent for world title matches, making a decision far ahead and sticking with it, or using the one-night tournament winner? Hmm. All right. So it sounds like a perfect bookends, a good beginning and a, a good ending for this studcast. It fits perfectly with the subject matter of what we're going to be talking about today. So stud, it sounds like this is going to be another great one. The today's training should be really good. A booker's responsibility to put together these tournaments and knowing you, I'm pretty sure that there's much more to this than expected. Well, you know, it always is, Dave, when you're talking wrestling business. Yep, you know, yep. uh, <laughs> uh, it starts out small and it just keeps growing, you know. So let's talk about tournaments in general. Let's start with that uh, in the day's training. And uh, much of what had been going on in Southeastern since Harley Race announced his own return on TV, uh, which he did. He sent a tape that announced uh, that I am coming back, uh, you know, not, even before Les knew, I think. So, you know, uh, this is going to be a, a big subject, and it could take up, uh, you know, an entire stud cast, but we're going to take a shallow dive into how far bookers would go and owners would commit when contacting and arranging the talent for big tournaments. How it all worked, basically, when you had a big tournament. 
So obviously, that's somewhat dependent upon the booker. Obviously, he's going to piece together the tournament and who he wants in it. But for most bookers, bringing in outside talent, that was entirely up to the owner. Now, the owner was always consulted when a booker needed or when he wanted talent from other territories, especially if their appearance was going to cost the promoter a lot of money for transportation or he had to pay a lot of additional cost for the payoff. You know, uh, uh, owners looking at the bottom line, bookers looking at big house. You know, so naturally there was more concern for the owner than the booker. The booker, he could load the card, and he didn't have to dig in his pocket to pay extra expenses for it. So that was always the owner's responsibility. And in some territories, bookers pretty quickly found out, don't even ask. Because <laughs> you know, if you had the, some owner didn't want to spend the big money, and uh, you found out pretty quickly when you went a couple times and said, hey, I'd like to put this guy on the card, and I'd like to bring in this guy right here for this for this particular match. <laughs> and uh, if they told you two or three times in a row, no, 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 then you uh, you finally backed away and you probably didn't even ask if you could do it. <laughs> so the subject of money out of a promoter's pocket, it, it made a lot of difference in whether territories became big-time companies or a lot of them just remained small and barely profitable because of the decision of how much money do you spend as a promoter? It all depended basically upon how successful an owner wanted to be. It was his choice, hmm. you know, and it was even more dependent on upon uh, as how willing he was to prove it. <laughs> and by proving it, I'm talking about reaching in that pocket and bringing out the dollars and to bring these big names in, spending that extra money in order to do something special for your company. And, and, and in fact, Dave, um, I think been thinking about this one, and uh, and I have a great example of how this worked, man. Uh, how it actually worked, and in, in some cases, uh, how it didn't work, you know. Mm -hmm. And and this this example is going to come from my own family, man. Uh, and it's what happened over a period of many years in one territory that had two owners, each operating differently on both sides of the same territory. The territory was located in Tennessee. Hmm. And uh, this is not the old classic book, A Tale of Two Cities. This is more like the tale of two promoters and two owners, man. So we're going to take a little history lesson here about the territory of this in, in Tennessee many, many years ago. So my grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, he, uh, he built an immense business and he, and he had to find a businessman who, who he, he, and he wanted a businessman because he needed somebody to help him operate the territory. He didn't need him to help him book the territory. He needed a guy that could keep up with the money and to keep up with, with uh, uh, how to take care of the business side of it. And, uh, and uh, this territory that Roy had built was spread all across the southern United States, man. It had become so large, he was about to lose some of the states that he had expanded into because he could not keep up with the accounting part of the business. So he picked a man named Nick Goulas of Birmingham, Alabama. And at the beginning of this relationship, which started in the 1940s, they ran the company together. And uh, then somewhere in the 1950s, they began to disagree with how to pay wrestlers and how the business itself should be run. Uh, they essentially split their huge territory into two pieces 
somewhere in the 1950s, okay? So Roy ran the western side of the state of Tennessee. He was an immense territory. He, he, uh, he also ran the towns that they were running in Mississippi, in eastern Ar Arkansas, and in eastern Missouri, in Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, and most of Kentucky. Uh, Nick, on the other hand, ran Birmingham and most of the state of Alabama, northern part specifically, Chattanooga, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, many of the smaller towns in central Tennessee. And then he developed uh, these uh, talent arrangements with other promoters that were in this, that particular area. One of them was John Kazana, the guy that I brought Knoxville from mm -hmm. uh, way back in 1974. So, uh, so Roy spent big money on wrestlers and he paid them well on his side of the territory, which was the Western side of the Tennessee territory. And he got, they brought in especially bigger names uh, then he utilized them on big events. And he did that because he wanted to build the image of the sport. He wanted to make his territory bigger and better. Now, Nick handled his business quite the opposite. Now, he was famous for not paying well, except for a few key guys that made all the money in the territory. Guys underneath starved to death. His main eventers made darn good money. And uh, he was never willing to reach in, reach out to other stars occasionally to expand the image of the sport because it was going to take a little extra payoff money. So Roy's side of the territory flourished from the beginning of their split operation arrangement. Nick did well also in the 1950s into the early 1960s. But because of Nick's refusal to bring in these stars of the sport and his continuing uh, idea and concept that he had to squeeze his payoffs as tightly as possible, his half of the company began to drop off in income. So by the 1970s, the western side of the old Tennessee territory was still good, very strong. The eastern side where Nick operated was beginning to fade away. <laughs> so this tale of two territories had ended very differently. After Roy's death, Jerry Jarrett and my father, they got the Roy's business and all of that western side of Tennessee. They continued to run business in the west, mm -hmm. similar to the way Roy had run business. Uh, they were using guys like Terry Funk fairly regularly, Dick the Bruiser, NWA champions, Jack Briscoe, uh, all of them, uh, Harley Race. And they even used the AWA champion, Nick Bockwinkel. And they continued to build a sport, and they survived, consequently, on into the 1980s, even into the early 90s, they were still having matches. One of the last companies to be alive, other than Vince having everything at that point. Nick Goulas, he was basically finished in the late 1970s. In fact, he sold his treasured home city of Birmingham uh, and all of the northern part of Alabama to my southeastern Pensacola territory in 1980. And uh, he was pretty much totally out of business at that point. So obviously, I guess the, you know, the, the point I'm trying to get here is uh, one set of owners, the people in Memphis spent money to build their business. The other owner cut, owner cut expenses in the wrong place, and he basically buried his future. So this short ride into what it took to be successful in the wrestling by spending more money on talent to continue your business, to build your business, was always dependent upon bookers, but even more so upon the owners. Yeah, I can 
I can see that, and that's a pretty interesting lesson too, especially uh, the, using the Tennessee territory comparison and these today's trainings. That's why they're they're always really cool. I think so. All right, where to next? So let's look at one of the best cards in southeastern Knoxville's history, man, on Friday night, September 30th, 1977. Uh, we had to have a one-night tournament. Uh, they had had a match the week before in which Jerry Lawler and the Mongolian Stomper both had their hands raised. And uh, there was no southeastern champion. Harley Race is coming to town seven days after this event that we're going to talk about in this studcast. And uh, he had to have somebody to wrestle. So this is going to be a one-night tournament to find that person. The winner is going to not only get the shot at Harley Race, but they're going to win the Southeastern Championship in the same night. So in addition to the tournament's seven matches, there were three more matches on this card. Uh, there were, that meant there was 10 matches in all on this card. It was a record for Knoxville at this point, 1977. So the opening match was Englishman Tony Charles against Roy Lee Welch. There was a Southeastern Tag Championship match on this card. Champions Mr. Knoxville, who was Ronnie Garvin, hmm. and Bob Gordon Jr., managed by Al Costello, were going to be defending against Jola Duke and Ron Wright. <laughs> the third match on the card wasn't going to take place until the last match of the night because this third match on the card was an NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match with Bob Armstrong against Don Carson. And so in the tournament, in the first round, uh, the, the first bracket, uh, I can give it, people an idea of who all's in this tournament and how this tournament's going to unfold during the course of this night. The very first round and in the first bracket, Terry Funk is wrestling against my brother, Robert Fuller. Uh, Irish, uh, there was a famous wrestler on this card, never been there before. I'd been talking to him and wanting to get him into the territory. And uh, so the Irishman and former world junior heavyweight champion, big star in Europe, uh, Pat Barrett. And he faced off against the pro, Doug Gilbert. Uh, the winners of this round are going to face each other, obviously, in the second round. Hmm. In the tournament, uh, in the first round, in the second bracket, you had the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., and he's wrestling against me. Hmm. And the Assassin is facing off against the former Southeastern and present Southern Heavyweight Champion, the guy that had the belt last week, Jerry Lawler, comes back to get into this tournament. He wants this shot at the world champion as well. So, again, again the winners of these two matches are going to face off against each other. So, the winners of those two second-round matches, they're going to meet in the finals, uh, you know, to uh, decide who will be the new Southeastern champion and who's going to meet Harley Race, the world heavyweight champion, on October 7th. Wow, that's pretty cool because, I mean, this it really was a great card. A rare babyface baby opening match, a Southeastern tag title match featuring the return of Ron Wright on top of that, seven tournament matches, and a non-sanctioned Lights out match on the end of the night. So with a card like this, the TV for Saturday, September 24th of that year had to be loaded, Ron. Well, obviously it was, man. It was really loaded. So, uh, and, and after Les ran down the TV for the day, when we got this TV started, 
uh, in which this, the TV was like a who's who of professional wrestling in the 1970s. The camera backed away and it showed that a great still shot on the set behind Les. And one referee was seen in that still shot holding up Jerry Lawler's hand. And across the ring on the other side, a second referee was holding up the stomper's hand. And uh, some of people in the Coliseum were cheering uh, the call. I remember when watching the end of that match and others were booing it. And I can tell you that. So uh, Gorgeous George Jr. was sitting next to Les when the cameras backed away. And the stomper man was pacing back and forth behind him. Upset, man. No belt, uh, you know. <laughs> and the southeastern belt, there it sat, right in front of Les. So the video was backed up as Les began to explain what fans had just seen on the giant photo. And uh, so both Jerry Lawler, the present champion, and the Mongolian stomper, the former champion, were declared winners of the match the night before. And Les further explained uh, being called uh, himself to the ring to, to, to for, for his his thinking about what we do with this situation here. There was no uh, Southeastern official at the match. Mm -hmm. So Les goes down to the ring and uh, then they decide, you know, that uh, they're going to hold the belt up, that that's the only fair thing to do. You couldn't have two guys as Southeastern champions. Uh, Harley race might've been good, but he could only wrestle one guy. Mm. So, you know, at the, so Gorgeous George Jr., he's he's sitting there watching all this. He sees the belt sitting right in front of Les, and he keeps trying to make his point. You know, there was Stomper with his hand in the air, and he keeps trying to make his point. The, the Stomper was definitely the winner. But Les just kept making it very clear that the Southeastern officials had decided that the belt had to be held up and that the next Friday there was going to be a one-night tournament to decide who would not only – be the new Southeastern champion, but be the wrestler that was going to face the NWA champion, Harley Race. So the crowd erupted. Obviously, they didn't want the Stomper getting the belt back, uh, and uh, they were excited about this decision. Uh, tournaments were big for fans because it had a lot of matches, and then this one, there was a lot at stake. So Gigi's reaction was much different than the Fans in the crowd, obviously. <laughs> he exploded on Les. He was extremely angry. He accused him of being biased, just as biased as the Southeastern officials, and that his stomper ought to be walking off the set right now with that belt right there. He kept pointing at it, you know, and he should be wrestling Harley Race for the world title in 13 days, too. <laughs> and then he continued, man. He wasn't, he didn't cool down, and he was expecting something entirely different. When Les asked him earlier, he says, uh, you know, Les, you came to my dressing room earlier in the day before the TV started, and you asked me to bring the stomper and join you here at the set. And he goes, I gladly came out here. And he goes, look what you did to me. <laughs> he said, now you brought me out here, and, and you, you're not going to give me the belt. I expected you were going to hand me the belt. <laughs> and I was going to get the, my stomper get the shot at the at Harley race. So, uh, you know, and he said, but, you know, Les, I'm not really surprised because he says, I, I know you like the Southeastern officials and neither one, neither you nor them care much for me or my stomper. <laughs> and then he ended up telling Les that all of y'all are going to regret it. This decision here, y'all made a mistake here. And he goes, uh, you know, he says, my stomper's not going to be denied. And to prove it, uh, he's going to the ring right now. And, uh, and he says, I'm going to have him hurt this guy out of there in the ring. First, and then he goes, uh, 
And then he goes, next Friday night, uh, he's going to get what's rightfully his. He's going to get his southeastern belt, and he's going to get that shot at Harley Race. Well, you know, uh, he said he got up GG at the, at the set, but Stomper was gone. Stomper just ran, man, <laughs> literally, man, to, you know, ran, <laughs> ran, they ran, stormed off the set, and men went running in the ring. And they had two, two opponents in there for him because he's still doing that thing he was doing with uh, Joe LaDuke, beating two guys at once. And after leaving both those guys bleeding, he just stomped them in the face like uh, like usual. Gorgeous George pushing him on. <laughs> uh, keep hurting him, keep hurting him, keep hurting him, keep hurting him. And then he got joined by, of all people, the guy that hadn't been there in almost two years, the assassin. Oh, The assassin comes back, okay? And he's in this tournament. So... I'm in this interview because I'm wrestling against the Mongolian Stomper. And uh, so I go into Studio B and uh, we're, I'm waiting on the commercial break to end. And, uh, and I'm going to have also in that my part of the interview, Jerry Lawler is going to be on video uh, from the night before, immediately after he was his southeastern belt was held up. He got his hand raised. Stomper got his hand raised. Uh, and they made an interview with him, and he says, I'm coming back. I want to be in this tournament, obviously. So the assassin began, saying he was only back for one reason. He says, to get a shot at Harley Race. And he says, to do something no man has ever done in a sport, to be the first mass wrestler ever to be the world champion. Hmm. And he had a really good point there. You know, no NWA uh, champion ever wore a mask. So, you know, it, it was a, he, he had, a, he had a good reason to be there and yeah. by golly, he was a talent uh, worthy of being there. Hmm. So, uh, Jerry Lawler's recorded interview from the night before they popped it back over to me in that studio. And, uh, you know, it, they ran this video of Lawler and he, he, he said, you know, he wanted desperately to beat the assassin. You know, he knew he was he was going to have an opportunity to wrestle the assassin in the first round. And then, you know, he said, if the stomper wins uh, against Ron Fleur, he goes, uh, I'd have a chance to, to get my hands on the stomper and even better get my hands on gorgeous George Jr. in the second round. And then he says, if I win the tournament, then on October 7th, uh, I'm going to put the great state of Tennessee on the rap wrestling map forever. I'm going to beat the the NWA champion in <laughs> Tennessee. It never happened before. And I'm going to be king of wrestling. <laughs> and he already called himself the king of wrestling. So he just wanted to fulfill his, his name, I guess. So it was Gigi's turn as the interview. And uh, he guaranteed his Mongol was going to win the tournament and the shot at Harley race naturally. And that his stomper was undoubtedly the best wrestler in the tournament. Uh, not just the tournament, but the best wrestler in the world. And he was destined to be the next NWA world champion. So it was my turn to finish up the interview. And uh, I finished kind of with a summary of what was going, what it was going to take for anybody to win a tournament like this one. You know, they, they were going to have to win three matches in a row. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of the, their opponents are some of the greatest wrestlers in the world. So they're going to have to beat three great wrestlers. And, uh, and, and I said, in my road to the winning, I knew who I was wrestling in Mongolian Stomper. And I knew who was wrestling in the second round in my bracket. 
And uh, so, you know, I said my road kind of to, to winning the Southeastern belt and to getting this shot at Harley race was like uh, everyone else in the tournament, extremely difficult. So with my drawing in the tournament, tournament to get to Harley, I could possibly, I told them, have to beat the Mongolian Stomp. Then maybe have to beat the Southern heavyweight champion, Jerry Lawler, mm -hmm. and then have to beat the former NWA world champion, Terry Funk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, anybody that could do that in one night, damn sure deserves a match with the champion. And, uh, and then I was going to definitely get the chance to win that NWA 10 pounds of gold 13 days from now. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, but you knew the path that, that laid ahead of you. So a really cool, fantastic first TV segment, Stud. What was what was next? Well, one of the greatest wrestlers in the world at that time, man, uh, Irish Pat Barrett was next. And uh, he was the Irish version of Tony Charles. I mean, wow, he was just amazing, amazing wrestler, amazing athlete. And Tony had been such a bonus for the company, man. When I had the opportunity to talk to this guy, I couldn't pass on the opportunity to get myself another foreign sensation like Tony Charles. And, uh, you know, and, and, and to, to find out just I'd never seen him wrestle, to find out a little bit about him. And I asked the guy that knew him well that had wrestled him many times. I asked Tony Charles, what do you think of Pat Barrett? And he says, Ron, he's one of the greatest wrestlers in the world. That's all I needed to hear, man. So I made a deal with Pat Barrett uh, to use him on two Knoxville shows in October. This one, this is one of those shows. And this is, uh, he's in the tournament to get a shot at Harley Race. Hmm. And uh, then if we were both happy, I said, well, then I'll bring him back in, uh, in full time for Southeastern in November of 1977. So this TV was Pat Barrett's first day in Southeastern, and I had him in the tournament. So why not put him on TV his very first day? And like I said, I'd never seen him work, but I'd heard nothing but good things about him. I watched the match, Dave. He was absolutely spectacular. He was extremely similar to Tony Charles in size, <laughs> but his wrestling moves were totally different. He, he wrestled almost a totally different style. I could instantly picture man the matches that i was going to be able to book between tony charles and pat barrett man yeah wow, wow. two yeah. european fan two of europe's best wrestlers in southeastern and uh and he got over in that first match that day man he used a throw in his match that i'd never seen charles even do man it was a totally different one <laughs> and maybe better than tony charles's throws and uh he covered the guy that crowd went crazy he I mean, this guy, this guy was going to be big. So he came to the set and he was welcomed there by Les, man. And you could tell Les was impressed. I was watching and Les was like all smiles, man. Like, wow, we love having you here, man. And uh, Robert joined him uh, for the interview, second, second round of interviews. And, uh, and he congratulated Barrett even for the win on his first day in Southeastern, you know. Uh, we were all impressed, and I'm sure the wrestlers and watching those monitors back in the dressing room were just as impressed. <laughs> the, the, and then the pro was in the studio by himself, as I had been for the first interview, and uh, he was over there in Studio B, and so Pat Barrett led off, and uh, he didn't talk about his opponent. He didn't know anything about his opponent, 
but he was a smart dude and he was a great baby face. And he started thanking everybody for being so kind to him since he'd gotten here. And he talked about how beautiful this part of the country was, that he had been to a few places in the United States, but he had never seen anything like this. It was really gorgeous. He's here about this same time of year we are, Dave. Leaves are turning. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see him being impressed with it, man. So, so he didn't talk much about his opponent because he wasn't familiar, like I said, with many of the American wrestlers. But the pro sitting over there in Studio B, he knew about Barrett. He had been to Europe, and he asked the obvious question right off the bat, the list. He goes, why and who in the, of the Southeastern officials selected Pat Barrett to be my first opponent for the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when he asked that, man, it pretty much said everything about his respect. For, right, for right. He was like, how did I get this guy in the first damn match? <laughs> so, so the next wrestler I heard from was via video again, like, like Jerry Lawler was, and he was not expected at all by the studio crowd. They didn't know nothing about his being on the show today. And all of a sudden, Terry Funk suddenly appeared on the monitors around the studio. Wow. And you could instantly tell his face, you know, was too way far too familiar for the studio. (laughs) (laughs) They exploded in booze and instantly Terry Funk is coming on. No. so Terry wasted no time, boy, in getting to the point, man, as, as usual. You know, saying he was definitely not looking forward to returning to the toothless tobacco-chewing capital of America. <laughs> you know, he said, he said, where people don't take baths and they talk in a language that nobody can understand. He said, <laughs> he said but he could go anywhere. To, he would go anywhere, he said, to get his NWA title back, even to Hillbilly Heaven for that. Reason if he had to. So he said he was also happy to have Ron Fuller's little brother in the first round. He's got Rob in that very first round of the tournament. Mm-hmm. And that he was going to show that little scrawny Fuller brother, <laughs> Robert, why Tennessee men didn't stand a chance against Texans <laughs> who were real men. <laughs> so and that he was going to beat three men Friday night and then the lookout Harley race because he was coming for the gold on October 7th. So then he finished by taking a little quick shot at me. He asked, he asked me, and I guess he knew I was watching. He said, yeah, he says, uh, Ron Fuller, do you remember what happened to you? Uh, one year and three days ago, as a matter of fact, do you remember when they carried you out of that stinking Coliseum you got here in Knoxville <laughs> after being in the ring with me, trying to beat me for the world championship? And then he said that he hoped to get his hands on me again so that they could carry me out on a stretcher again. (laughs) (laughs) So Rob had luckily gone up and watched this interview uh, earlier in the control room before the show started. So he kind of was prepared. He knew what this was all about. And, And right off the bat, he stood up for the fans, saying what a great part of the country this was compared to Funk's tired old Texas, you know. And he said that, that I had beaten Funk the year before, uh, had my hand raised, was given the world title belt, and I got robbed of it when Ronnie Garvin showed up at ringside to save your ass, Funk. So that word had to be bleeped before the tape showed, obviously. 
But the studio heard it, boy, and they got a pop out of it. I tell you, as soon as it left Rob's mouth, man, they responded to that. And he told Terry that he was never going to get me get to me in the tournament. He wasn't even going to get to Ron. You're not going to get to Big Brother because he said, I'm going to beat your big mouth, Terry Funk's butt, in the first round of the tournament. The studio exploded, man. They were they were happy to see anybody going to kick Terry Funk's butt. I bet they did. Wow, that's another great – I mean, first of all, your brother was the perfect baby face, and he was – what was your brother, 27 years old, 26 or something? At yeah, that time? yeah, he was he was young man, and he looked <laughs> like he was twenty two. Yeah, he was a great looking kid. And then there's the burly Terry Funk in there. But uh, anyway, so you're that uh, that had to be a fun combination right there. So all right, another great TV so far. Let's uh, let's go. Let's take it to the break and come back with a personality profile. And as you take that break, remember to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Subscribe, ring the bell, get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on the Southeastern Rewind channel on YouTube. And be sure to tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind as well. Again, that personality profile is coming up when we come back on this Studcast. You've heard the stud talking about it on the Studcast. Now, Rod is attempting to do something very special for his fans pertaining to the Dinner with the Stud. It takes place Wednesday night, October 13th from 7 to 9 p.m. He's working his best to be able to show the event live on his Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. So check his social media daily on Facebook, Ron Fuller Welch, Ron Fuller the Tennessee Stud, and author Ron Fuller Welch, or on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch, for information about the possible live coverage of this event. Tickets are still available until Saturday, October 16th, and they're only $30 at TNstud.com. That's TNstud.com. Click on the stud store. And thanks to everyone for making this possible. Hey, everybody. Welcome back in. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hello, I am David Summers with the Tennessee stud. Hey, we're back to the personality profile for this big TV show. Set it up for us, stud. Well, this one, man, is going to be, well, it's got to be, who else but uh, Harley Race, NWA World Champion. He's going to be on this, on the video. It's uh, sent from the Florida Territory. Uh, actually, the night before, I don't know, man, they were so cool, the way they did business with us down there. I needed it done. Uh, Gordon and uh, Harley happened to be there. Gordon and them went into the studio, and they, they made this this uh, interview and sent it to us. Um, but I think FedEx was just getting started back in those days. And uh, amazingly, they got it to us uh, <laughs> on time to be used on our television show. Mm -hmm. So Les obviously opened the profile by himself. You know, uh, he had no guests with him. He was, he was uh, in Florida and he explained all recent title changes uh, and the difficulty Southeastern had been having over the last five or six weeks in finding somebody who could hold on the Southeastern belt long enough to be ready for Harley Race. So he covered the upcoming tournament and some of the intriguing matchups that would probably or could possibly come up the following Friday night. And there were a great number of them. Wow, it was an interesting little deal. Then it was time to turn this over to the man himself. NWA world champion, Harley Race. And Harley sat next to Gordon Soley, and uh, almost as if they were doing a personality profile of their own down there, you know. 
They didn't do personality profiles on that show, but it kind of looked like they were setting up like a segment like we almost did for personality mm-hmm. profiles. Mm-hmm. And then Gordon asked Harley, in his opinion, uh, of the huge tournament happening next Friday night in the Knoxville Coliseum and, uh, and how it might affect his planning to defend the title. Well, you know, Harley, man, he was always cool and calm. You know, he never got excited. He hardly ever raised his voice, you know, and he was and he was always very complimentary of Southeastern wrestling and its excellent talent. And uh, and, uh, and, you know, he wasn't surprised. He said he wasn't surprised that it had come down to a tournament because he thought some of the best wrestlers in the world were in Southeastern wrestling. And he mentioned stars like uh, he said. Guys like the Mongolian Stomper, uh, the Pro, Doug Gilbert, uh, the Fuller Brothers are down there. The Assassin is on this, and he goes. And then they got they got promoter that's willing to to step out. And he goes. They got world class wrestlers on this in this tournament too. Uh, guys like Jerry Lawler, hmm. who is the f- present Southern Heavyweight Champion. He knew that. He goes, uh, and they got that extremely capable world junior champion from Europe, Pat Barrett, on this card. And he goes, and that, if that isn't enough, they got that, <laughs> that old, the guy that always shows up every time the world title is at stake, and uh, that's old Terry Funk. And so uh, <laughs> they took about four minutes, uh, and, and they not only built the tournament, but also the territory during that four minutes. And in the end of it, Harley finished with, with, with that very secure and confident air about him, he said it really didn't matter to him who won the tournament because when it got right down to any opponent for him and his belt, he was always the baddest man on God's green earth. <laughs> As usual, it was his closing line. And uh, wow, you know, after having wrestled him uh, several times, and, and, uh, and I'd say most guys that ever did, they'd have to pretty much agree that he might have been right about that being the baddest man on God's screen. <laughs> you know, it, it was a very effective profile. I have to say that. Wow. So the, the studio, obviously, though, they booed the end of it. <laughs> and, you know, obviously they didn't like hearing that he was the baddest man on God's green earth. They let him know it. But, uh, boy, they changed their tune because as soon as they really got into booing it, here came Jola Duke and Ron Wright, man, into the studio for the next match. And uh, what a very odd team that was, man. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> They got a real quick win, which, uh, you know, uh, LeDuke, anything LeDuke had a, had a hand in usually didn't take too long. And they went to the set with Les for the next interview. Uh, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, and Bob Orton Jr. Uh, had their belts over their shoulders uh, with their manager, Al Costello. They were over in Studio B. And Garvin and Orton went first, man. So, uh, and they were laughing, man, about this strange combination thrown at them this time. You you go, and and I think one of them said, you know, uh, there was no team, no team good enough to take their belts. Didn't make any difference who they wrestled. And he, and then he said, Joe DeDuke, obviously, he hadn't been able to find the right partner. He's had both the Fullers. He's had Bob Armstrong. He's had Tony Charles. And he goes. And uh, and and they just couldn't get it done. Uh, and now he says uh, they got that hillbilly, Ron Wright, man. And we know both of them. They both laughed and said, "We both know that he certainly ain't the man." <laughs> so Al Costello asked the fans <laughs> if they knew how many weeks now that his team had been Southeastern Tag Champions. 
Well, obviously, there was no answer from the studio. They weren't <laughs> going to brag about it. So Al made a smart remark about the crowd, you know, said something to Les about, well, obviously, they don't know because they can't even count that high. <laughs> he said, but I can count that high. And he goes, my fantastic team has been title holders for 15 of the last 16 straight weeks here. Wow. So LeDuke answered that he had been one of those two men that did beat them that one time <laughs> and that he was sure he had found another one and that and the good old Tennessee Hills capable of beating the champs. <laughs> so Ron Wright, who was making his first appearance in, in quite a while, was uh, still a big fan favorite. Never, never did that change. And uh, Ron tore into the wrestlers in the other studio saying they were a good team, but he had one of the strongest men on, on earth on his team. And he was going to teach Joe LaDuke how to turn that strength into fighting and give them boys over there a good old Tennessee dog whooping. Next uh, uh, uh. Yeah. And, you know, and then he finished with that. Don't be surprised if me and old Joe LaDuke end up next Saturday wearing them belts on TV. And the crowd, boy, they always pop for Ron, and they popped again. So then the last segment of the show opened up. Don Carson at the set left. They watched the match between him and Bob Armstrong from the night before. Uh, Bob got his hand raised in in, in this match uh, because uh, Carson got disqualified. And Carson got disqualified because he got caught loading his glove. Uh, and But, you know, that didn't stop Don. The disqualification didn't stop the match. Bob got his hand raised and started to leave the ring, and Carson cut him off. He already had his glove loaded. And, boy, he really busted Bob Big time. Uh, Bob had a lot mm. of stitches. I never asked him. I don't remember exactly how many. But Carson did some real damage on Bob. And Bob was about as bloody as I ever saw him, man, wow. uh, at the end of this. And uh, Carson kind of left him laying at the end of it. So so Carson brought all that to Les's attention. You know, naturally, he was bragging about, look how bad Bob Armstrong's bleeding, he goes. You know, and it, and it was bad enough that the, we had to blur out some of the facial shots because it was, Bob was really a mess, you know. And Don Carson, uh, obviously, bragging as he always did, he said, you know, he didn't look like a, a, a winner to me, did he? <laughs> did he look like that to you people? So he kept focusing on how Buddy bloody Bob had been during this match and uh, and he had loved it and had asked the Southeastern officials to give him and Armstrong another match immediately after he went to the dressing room and this one uh, he wanted beyond the control of Southeastern and even the NWA he wanted and he was granted by Southeastern a very rare non-sanctioned NWA lights out match so Don explained the rules to this match that was coming up on the Friday night following the TV, that it was going to be the last match of the night. That's the way uh, lights out matches were. And because it was going to be so brutal, the NWA didn't want to sanction the match. And it would be no time limit, no disqualification, and anything goes in the lights out match. And that what they're going to do is going to turn out the lights in the building before the match even started to signify that the National Wrestling Alliance wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And when those lights went back on, uh, that that was going to be the beginning of the end for Bob Armstrong. So Les had kind of heard enough at this point. Uh, Don, as usual, ranting and raving. And he asked Phil Rainey in the ring to get the last match started. 
So Phil introduced the wrestler already in the ring. Then the studio went crazy, man, because a badly bandaged up Bob Armstrong entered the studio, man, for a live match. Uh, he really had no mercy on his opponent. He didn't take very much time. And uh, that was kind of expected, you know, that uh, be the same thing that uh, he was going to do to Don Carson the following Friday night. So he jacked another jaw in the TV match. He covered his opponent for the win. <laughs> and then he joined Les at the set. He was extremely fired up, uh, you know, which wasn't hard for Bob to get, you know. And he had listened to the previous session, obviously, between Les and Don Carson. So Don Carson started the last interview from Studio B. He reiterated most of what he had just said earlier to Les, as usual. And then Bob was left with most of the interview time, and he didn't waste it. And he kind of started out with a little story, a brief history of his three NWA Lights Out matches in his career. And he mostly made it clear to Carson that he had never lost one of them. He talked about being basically left on his back the last two times he was in the ring with Don Carson and how that was something he wasn't used to. And he knew that Carson's black glove that uh, was going to be uh, in this, obviously he'll be wearing it in this lights out match, and it's going to be another bloody match. He said, but this time it ain't going to be just me bleeding, and that he's going to be ready to do whatever it took to leave Carson laying, uh, just like he'd been left laying in the last two weeks in a row. And then he finished by saying that he intended to take Carson's black glove off and stick it where the sun don't shine. <laughs> now, fans <laughs> love that. And then he asked Les, he says, uh, you know, Les, uh, you know, do you know why they called this kind of a match, the lights out match? And Les, you know, couldn't, couldn't really answer real quickly. I don't think he knew where Bob was headed with it. And Bob just kind of rolled right on. He says, uh, you know, they call it that because they're perfect for me. He said, because my jaw jackers are perfect for turning somebody's lights out. <laughs> and that somebody is going to be you, Don Carson, next Friday night. I bet the crowd owned the place after that one. No oh, doubt. yeah. They, they loved it, man. Talk about setting the table. All right. So this TV really did cover it all. So what happened the next Friday night in the Knoxville Coliseum? Well, uh, obviously, uh, it got off to a great start. Tony Charles, man, uh, who was, he kind of dominated uh, Roy Lee Welch, which was to be expected. But by golly, he couldn't beat him, you know. Uh, and it was a babyface match, which, gosh, I always loved to have a babyface match in the first three matches of a card. And, uh, wow, this one was great. And uh, it ended in a time limit, 20-minute draw. So Roy Lee managed to stay with Tony Charles for 20 minutes. Quite a feat, man. So and he did almost everything uh, he wanted to with Roy. I mean, uh, Charles just, like I said, dominated Roy during the match. But he just couldn't get him counted out. Uh, Roy just kept kicking out and kicking out kicking out. At the end of it, the bell rang, time ran out. Tony Charles, being the great, decent person he was, he raised Roy's hand at the end of the match. And uh, both men got a tremendous standing ovation uh, on a first match, babyface match. Wow, I was so proud of how far the Southeastern fans had come, man, since my arrival just three years earlier, man. That, that would have never happened three years earlier in Knoxville. So the first time, first round of the tournament was the next thing up. And uh, Pat Barrett, 
was in the first one of those matches. And he won his first Southeastern match in the Coliseum. He beat the pro, Doug Gilbert. And uh, pretty uh, pretty solidly, I guess is a good word, way of putting it. And, uh, and then I was in the second of the match of the night uh, at that tournament against the Mongolian Stomper. And I got a win over the Stomper in the first round. The assassin in the first round beat Jerry Lawler. And then Robert lost a great match to Terry Funk, uh, the last of the first round matches. And uh, Funk kept putting Rob in a, in a Boston Crab during the course of this match, working his lower back. And uh, Rob countered, he countered that move. Uh, and the only counter for Boston Crab is you had to extend your legs, push up with your arms, and, uh, and he would flip Funk out of the hole. And he did it several times. So Funk, pretty smart dude, man. It wasn't his first rodeo. And uh, so he finally grabbed Rob and the Boston Crab. And he was pretty close to the corner. And he stepped over Rob and put him into the crab. And he had his head facing the turnbuckles. Hmm. So Rob managed to extend his legs like he had done several times before in the match already. And that's an excruciatingly painful hold, that Boston Crab. And, uh, you know, the referee's right down there in Rob's face. He's expecting him to submit. And uh, he didn't see that every time Rob extended his legs, once Funk got him into that corner, uh, Funk, uh, Funk's head would ram right into the turnbuckle. Hmm. And every time that happened, obviously, it kept the pressure right on the hold. Rob could never relieve the pressure. So about three times he pushed him out of it, but Funk just let his hand red, head ram into the turnbuckle. <laughs> Referee never saw it. And uh, finally Rob had to give up. He uh, really didn't have any choice. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and another thing about this particular match, man, and, and my brother and I have talked about it many, many times, but, um, and uh, Rob tells the story about how bad he, he was hurting during this match and how totally exhausted he was when it was over. Uh, Rob had never wrestled either of the Funks by himself. And uh, I'd had many matches with both of them. Uh, and, uh, and what he did is he got so excited about it that he blew himself up in the dressing room. Uh, you know, we talked about it many times and he agreed that I was probably right about it. So I happened to be watching this match from the back of the Coliseum. And, uh, and I saw uh, at the end of it that he was legitimately hurt and, and he wasn't going to be able to get to his feet hmm. after it was over by himself. So I went to the ring and I, knowing he was really hurt and not because it was part of a finish. I just I went. It's my brother. I got and I knew he was really hurting and I got there and I helped him to his feet and I hugged him, man, a for real hug, man. And I raised his hand and that Coliseum crowd, man, gave him an ovation. It, I, it, it was so spontaneous and it was so totally unexpected. I got goosebumps all over my whole body, man. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rob to this day, you know, he, he says it was one of the best moments of his career. Wow. Yeah. It was a it was a it was a big moment for two brothers. Uh, even though he hadn't beaten Funk, uh, wow, he really gave Terry all he all he could all he could take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then at this point, uh, we're through with the first round of the tournament, and it's time for the Southeastern Tag Championship match between Mr. Knoxville and Orton Jr., uh, managed by Costello, 
And uh, they're against Jola Duke and Ron Wright. And wow, they had a great match. Jeez, man, Ron Wright was doing his normal thing. And he was doing a little bit of Tennessee dog whooping, too, while he was getting it done. <laughs> and the champions won. So when Al Costello, man, we was able to pass Mr. Knoxville something that it was a, it was one of the ways they won a lot of matches. And uh, Mr. Knoxville knew how to use it. And he did. And he knocked out poor Ron Wright's running lights, man. Uh, so uh, Ron had to be helped from the ring. So time for the second round of the tournament. Uh, Terry Funk back in there again after beating Rob, and he beat Pat Barrett. And he used his spinning toehold. Uh, but what a spectacular match they had. I was so impressed with this Barrett. Wow, he was so good, man. And uh, he was much smaller than Terry. Uh, but, wow, the fans really loved him. He got over, man. Uh, he might have lost, but he, could, he, he was on his way to, to being big time. So I beat the assassin. Uh, and I used my fuller leg lock uh, uh, to get to the finals, you know. So uh, there was Terry Funk won his, I won mine. It's going to be me and Terry Funk in the finals. So there was only about a 10-minute intermission, uh, and that was an intermission for the fans. And that's all I had to catch my breath after this match with the assassin. Wow. And then I came back to the ring, and there's Terry Funk. And we're wrestling for the shot at the belt and for – uh, this, for the shot at the world championship belt and whoever wins is going to win the Southeastern belt right there on the spot. So this was the fourth meeting between Terry Funk and myself in Southeastern history. The crowd was explosive, man, and on their feet most of the match. I put my fuller leg lock on him, man, about the 20, 25, 30 minutes into the match, and the crowd took the roof off the building, man. I thought I had him, but Terry was such a fighter I and mean, he had such guts that he managed to drag both of us on our back. I'm on my back. He's on his back. He managed to drag me and him far enough to get his hands on the ropes. He got a break. So, and then he recovered uh, not long after that to put me into his family's famous spit into hole. Uh, now I'd wrestled Terry enough that uh, I knew, I knew the, the way to beat it. And uh, so uh, everyone went, was on their feet as soon as he got in, got me in the spinning toe hold. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he spun around on my legs a couple of times on that, uh, on that uh, right leg. And uh, then he started uh, into that third spin, man. And I reached up there and hooked him around the head. And I pulled him over, man, and put him right into a perfect small package cradle. <laughs> Referee counted him out. It was the biggest pop I ever heard in that building. Wow. You know, it just, it was unbelievable. They thought I was beat and bang, turned it into victory. <laughs> uh, and then they came in and made a presentation of the Southeastern belt to me. And then they announced that next Friday night, I would be meeting Harley Race for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Wow. <laughs> so the night wasn't finished. Crazy, right? I yeah. Mean, uh, because Bob Armstrong and Don Carson were in that NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match. And when they got to the ring, Phil Rainey announced what type of match it was and the rules. The Coliseum crew, they threw the building into total darkness for about 10 seconds. And then when the lights came back on, uh, Phil Rainey uh, 
Phil Rainey got out of the ring and uh, the contestants, uh, uh, he introduced the guys from the floor because he, he mm. was concerned that they might run him down or run over him. So he got out and introduced the two guys from the floor. <laughs> and uh, boy, when the bell rang, it was one of the most brutal matches probably in the history of Southeastern. Man. Uh, both guys were bleeding really bad. And Bob Armstrong, at the end of it, was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He had Bob uh, Don Carson's black glove headed almost entirely off his hand. And uh, Carson was basically laying there helpless, uh, about to be, uh, and I think Bob would have, before he stuffed it where the sun don't shine, <laughs> I think he would have stuffed it on his own hand uh, and used it on Carson some himself. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Carson was Carson was dead. It was over. And all of a sudden, the assassin, who you know had no real connection that I could remember with Don Carson, mm -hmm. uh, he entered the ring and he was behind Bob's back. Bob never saw him, and he loaded up his mask. With he always that was his deal. Mm -hmm. He stuffed something in the forehead of his mask, and he head butted Bob in the back of the head. Bob never saw it coming. Wow! And it hit him, and it took Bob off his feet so bad. He knocked him. I think he knocked him unconscious, but but uh, he caught him on the way down, and he turned him around and head-butted him in the forehead <laughs> twice. And then he dropped him, and Bob went down, man, face first. Wow. And, uh, and uh, then the assassin left the ring. Now, the referee sees all this, but it's a non-sanctioned, <laughs> no disqualification, anything-goes match. Uh, he can't stop it and, and, and make uh, Bob the winner. And Carson crawled over there and covered Bob, and <laughs> the rest was history. Wow. I bet the fans had a fit over that. That's a phenomenal night. A little bit of everything happening. So I, so I bet you did really well with attendance, too. Well, yeah, we're, we're back there in the second, Col second Coliseum show in a row after about four months of no Coliseum. Uh, we're right up there close to the all-time record. We were at 6,000. The all-time record was right around 63. That was the att announced attendance by the Coliseum uh, on the April show with me against Harley Race in 1977. I think there was quite a few more people than there in there than that. But the, the announced attendance was 6,000. And uh, there was no way to add any more seats to what we had on the Coliseum floor on ringside. Uh, so the only thing that was going to change as far as the building was concerned for the next Friday night and the world champion uh, event was that the prices were going to be up a dollar across the board for all the Coliseum seats and up $5 a seat for the first three rows of ringside, which hmm. we called the Golden Circle. Wow. Okay. All right. Listen, I think we've used up our time today for stud for the for the learning tree question. So we'll hold that for another episode. In the meantime, on Facebook, to become friends with the stud, go to Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud page or the author Ron Fuller Welch page. Simply follow him on either of those pages and become friends with a legend. On Twitter, it's Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow him there as well. You can go to his website, tnstud.com. Find everything related to the stud. All studcast, super studcast 
the stud store with all kinds of souvenirs and dinner with the stud tickets as well. His fantastic Brutus novel is there too and much more. Don't forget to subscribe now if you haven't already to Ron's new home, Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Ring that bell and get the best in old school wrestling. We'll ring your bell every time something new is added. So where are we going to ride next week, Ron? We're going to be riding Dave into a very special stud cast, a number 220. Can I believe it? Uh, we're going to be releasing it one day later than normal on Thursday, October 14th, 2021. Uh, fans don't forget that. And it's going to be uh, dropped uh, a day late because uh, because if it, it is recorded, it will be showing on Thursday the 14th. And if it, we're able to do live, you'll be able to see it live on the Wednesday night. Uh, so that's uh, next Wednesday night, uh, and I call it special this one because it's all about Harley Race's third NWA title defense in Southeastern, and and it's one of the best cards in the history of the sport. Uh, Butch Malone, who had been one of the former tag champions with Norvell Austin in 1975, is returning to Southeastern about two years later, and he's going to take on the pro, Doug Gilbert, my brothers, against another top star, Jim Dalton. The Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., going up against a uh, great Ricky Gibson, a great young star. Uh, Southeastern Tag Championship on this card, Mr. Knoxville and Bob Warden Jr., with manager Al Costello, are going to be defending against Joe LaDuke. And Joe LaDuke has formed a great friendship and is bringing another partner on board to try to get to those championships. And this time, he's going to bring Roy Lee Welch. Uh, and it's Roy Lee's first Southeastern Championship match of any kind. Uh, these guys are going to make a great team. Wow. There's a big, big, there's a very big connection between them. Bob Armstrong and Don Carson are going to be in a return match. It's going to be for the NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match. Again, the second one in a row. That's very rarely ever been done. And there's a special stipulation that goes along with this Lights Out match. The winner is going to have to leave Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, World Junior Heavyweight Championship, champion Nelson Royal against the great Tony Charles again in one of those classic Charles versus Royal matches. Uh, wow, they were always unbelievable. And then the NWA World Heavyweight title match, Harley Race against me. So, and if I can make it happen, uh, you know, I want fans to know the Dinner with a Stud uh, is going to be live if I can make that happen next Wednesday night, 7 o'clock on the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel, right out of Knoxville, Tennessee. And if you can't make it happen, be sure and check your social media sites, uh, my, my Facebook and my Twitter, and uh, I'll be telling you whether it will or will not happen that way. If it's not going to be done live, You'll be able to see it the following day uh, uh, once it's recorded. Oh, for sure. It's it's definitely going to be a big week for you, Ron. Oh, I, I, one of the biggest, man. So, you know, it's a big week and uh, lots of things happening, obviously. And, and I owe all this to my fans, man. So many things happening, good things happening. And I'm going to do my best, man, to give them all the best that I can. And uh, thanks to all of you for your support, as always. Uh, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. 
For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.